You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome back to the 602 Club, Track FM's local watering hole. I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is almost every single week, the, the one and only, the fantastic, the beautiful, and the friendly, Christy Morris. Hello. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I'm back. <laughs> well, it's, it's, good, it's good that we're back, you know. Um, it was fun last week as we talked about uh, Dooku Jedi Loss with John, so that was really fun. And now we're kind oh, yeah. of back to our scheduled programming with Monsters. Uh, we talked about Godzilla, and now we're going to move on to Kong Skull Island as, well, the next week we'll move on to Godzilla King of Monsters. So, yeah. Got a monster theme going on. It's it's um it's a lot of fun. Like I'm I'm I've been really enjoying revisiting these films, and so I'm excited to talk about this one with you. Uh, before we get into it, though, you know you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We encourage you, please, 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 uh, hit us up with a star rating review wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, give us a star rating review there. It really does help people find the show. And if you review us, uh, we will read your review here on the show and let people know what you said. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed too, because the moment that we drop a show, you get the episode. So make sure you don't miss out on a single episode of the 602 Club. You know you don't want to, because there's always something good coming. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We do have our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook. It's called the Babel Conference. Now, if you're on Facebook, type Babel in the search field, and that will let you find the group. Or maybe you're on our website at track.fm, and any of the show pages, there's a button that says Discussion. And if you hit that, that'll also let you in the group. And then last but not least, you can always send us an email. We do really like getting emails here on the show, Christy, and it's been a very long time since we've gotten one. So somebody... Yeah, let us know your thoughts on this episode or any episode, or maybe something you want to ha- have us cover. Go over to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and then that email comes to us. As I mentioned, this week we're going to be diving into Kong Skull Island. And, you know, I, I always think it's really interesting with any movie, um, especially like this, where, you know, this is the king, you know, the, the the original monster from the original monster movie, King Kong, all the way back in 1933. And I kind of wondered, um, was this uh, another monster that you were a fan of, uh, Christy? And, and, and what movies that Kong had been in um, were some that you really liked or maybe you didn't like any of them until this one? I don't know. In fact, I don't even know if you liked this one. We, I, I, <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. So, um Definitely wondering where your Kong fandom was by the time this movie was coming out. 
So I had seen a couple of Kong movies before I saw Skull Island. Uh, so I was definitely familiar with his origins and everything. I think probably the first one I saw, wasn't there, well, the one from 1933, was that in black and white? Because I feel like I saw yeah. the one that was black and white. Okay, yeah. So I remember seeing that uh, barely, like when I was younger, it was something my dad and I watched together um, and loved it. I've always thought Kong was the coolest of all of the monsters in this kind of world. Um, I know that we're going to be watching Godzilla, King of Monsters, but to me, King Kong was the king of monsters. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm kind of there with you. That's the one that I knew more so than, you know, Godzilla. And um, part of that was, you know, seeing bits and pieces of the, the 1933 original. And then um, for me, you know, I maybe on you know the outs on this one for most people but i really liked king kong from peter jackson oh was, yes i remember seeing that one too it's very long mm -hmm. it is very long so uh, um, the only thing i didn't like was the bugs oh yeah <laughs> and they get they, <laughs> and disgusting. they're worse in their extended version um yeah there are a lot of disgusting bugs but, you know, I really enjoyed that movie. You know, there was a, uh, it kind of embraced everything that was uh, the, the 1933 version and, um, you know, gave it that modern shine to it, you know, with the, the special effects and everything that they did. And, you know, that movie had great monster fights when, you know, he's taking on two T-Rexes, which is pretty awesome. Uh, mm -hmm. And... It you know, I just, I really like that movie. I, so, I, for me, I was, it was kind of, excited when they uh, when I saw that they were going to be doing something else with Kong and then you know honestly I'll say for this you know I saw this movie and the trailers came out I wasn't quite sure which way this movie was going to go to me it kind of looked like it could be one of those movies it could be good or it could kind of go off the deep end and I wasn't and the trailers didn't for me didn't give me a, a, a hint of really like oh I think this movie's going to be excellent um, or I think this movie's going to be you know awful. I was I was like I don't know what to think about this movie. So coming into it, I was I was I don't even know if you'd call me trepidatious. I guess I was just more like curious than anything else. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't even remember seeing the previews personally, um, but I'm sure that I did because it was pretty recent. Um, I. I remember thinking, if it's got Sam Jackson, I'm usually a fan. Um, and I, I liked that the feel it gave me was a little bit more of a, um, you know, a war, a Vietnam movie, and not just an, another Kong movie. So, um, you know, I, I really was looking forward to it from that aspect. Yeah, I think, you know... The the most interesting thing for me about this was going in, I knew it was going to fit in with the Godzilla movie because it was going to be kind of part of the same universe, you know, and, and so mm -hmm. it was going to be interesting to see how they did that. And they actually, you know, they kind of referenced that with, you know, our uh, you've got um, John Goodman's character who is a part of Monarch, who he was originally a part of the group that was trying to kill Godzilla in, in the credits of that movie. Um, when they're, you know, doing all the bomb testing, quote unquote, <laughs> in uh, the right. Pacific. Yeah, he's a part of that. So I thought that was really interesting. And so I think you kind of hit something on the head that I really like is that this movie to kind of legitimize its like its being, like why make another God uh, King Kong movie? 
they don't just repeat the same story. I mean, Peter Jackson already did that. And so they really craft a story where that could have happened possibly, but this is kind of its own thing, you know, and, and this, in many ways, even this Godzilla, he feels like the 1933 Godzilla in the sense that he stands upright, you know, he doesn't look like an ape as much as he does kind of like ape-ish, you know, like he doesn't right, look like, like a, a giant. Right. Yeah. Yes. And it's on his turf this time. It's not kidnapping him and taking him to, you know, a big city somewhere in the United States. It's, you know, on this island that's shrouded in mystery and you've got to get through this crazy storm just to get to it. Um, but I, I, I do think that the shooting of all of the different nature scenes was really beautiful. And I think, you know, that's why my husband and I bought the steelbook version of the movie because we wanted to have that sunset imagery. Um, and it, it really, like you're saying, Matt, it doesn't always come across like he's an ape, uh, except for the scenes where he's like beating his chest. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's something it's, that gorillas actually do. Yes. Well, and I think, you know, you also mentioned, and I think this is another smart thing for them this whole idea of there being Skull Island and in some place that's, you know, not findable, them setting it in the, you know, the 70s when they're just starting the satellite mapping project, you know, it does kind of feel like this would be the last opportunity for there to be an island that nobody's found. Right. If it was modern times, it probably right. wouldn't be. <laughs> Right. Well, but it and it also kind of explains maybe why that island isn't thought of in other places afterwards, because it's actively possibly being hidden on purpose from the rest of the world when it comes to satellite imagery and whatnot, because they don't want people to know about this island because it's not a place they want anybody to go after what we see happen. So I, I really felt like, you know, setting the movie in the 70s, you know, right after the Vietnam War, you know, not only does it help with a lot of the other thematical elements, but it just helps with the setup of the movie in in itself. Right. And the believability, like you're saying, with the technology that it wouldn't have been advanced enough yet for things like this to be discovered. Um, And even, you know, when they're looking at like the seismic activity and things like that, it's interesting to see how far equipment has come since then. Yeah. (laughs) That was definitely interesting because, you know, the what was fascinating to see them kind of use that technology from back then is, again, they're first they're they're really just starting to map um, the world like this from satellite imagery, but also seismic, you know, seismographs and everything and using that to try and understand more of our world than we had at that point, which, uh, mm-hmm. again, I think it just it, it sets up us in a place where unless we're actively hiding it because we don't want people to find something, you know, so we're keeping it hidden uh, from the world technology-wise, you know, this feels like a good time to set this movie. And I thought, you know, the other piece of that that I really felt like it it became an important part thematically because, you know, we have Samuel Jackson's uh, Colonel Packard, and he really just feels like that guy who's like, if 
just get a bigger hammer, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. because he only sees the world. Uh, he is the hammer. And so everything is a nail to him. And I just thought that was really interesting because he says in the, in the movie that he can, he knows when he, he's seen an enemy. Um, and really, I, I don't think he's so right in that because I think what he's really seeing is the fact that he only knows one way of life. You know, and that's war. That is like, you know, beating an, an, a perceived enemy into submission. And everything mm-hmm. to him at this point is kind of an enemy. And I just thought that that was really fascinating because like the Godzilla movie in here, Kong isn't the enemy. He's just part of the natural order who's protecting the world. Again, it, you know, feels very similar to that. And it's like, no, this is the created order. If you don't have Kong, then we wouldn't have the world we have today. <laughs> right? That it's like the the way of natural selection at its best and that, you know, he makes sure that the population control happens of the other monsters. So without him, then there's overpopulation of something that's even worse than Kong. <laughs> And I, I have to give props too to those. I don't know what you want to call them. The skull crawlers is what uh, the one oh, guy I just calls made up them. that name. Sounds stupid <laughs> now that I say it out loud. <laughs> no, no, we can call them that. It's great. Uh, I love those because it's totally different than any of the other monsters we've seen before. It's like it's already dead, but somehow still living. It doesn't have eyeballs. And yeah, it only it's super has creepy two arms and a tail like it's missing what you would think it would need like four and then a tail like a lizard. But no, just two. It's really weird. No, I agree with you. I, I think that's just really smart. But, I, you know, and I, the, the thing that I liked about this is, I, you know, it's one of those things where you have a movie where it's mostly about spectacle. But I do feel like this movie had some really interesting things to say and, and that this idea that. There's a interesting conversation between Cole and uh, one of the other guys, and he's one of the captains there, the Sky Devils, and he's talking to he's talking to to John Goodman's character, uh, and he says, you know, sometimes you don't find an enemy, you don't create it, you don't find an enemy or something like that until you go looking for it, um, and then you create one. And that I I just I thought that was really fascinating because, you know, you can look at the world in a way that creates enemies that aren't even there or you can look at the world um, and wait until something proves itself to be an enemy. And there's that's just there is because otherwise, you know, you're like Colonel Packard and you just make something an enemy that's not an enemy because that's all you see. And it's so interesting because it really brings to mind, you know, the Phantom Menace where your perception determines your reality. And so, and how you will see, you know, so if we put on the, like, you know, (laughs) the thought of like the enemy colored glasses, you know, yeah, of course we're going to see everything is just an enemy to be defeated. Um, Whereas if we have, you know, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Um, You know, thank you. Uh, (laughs) Friday Night Lights. Uh, But you know what I'm saying? Like, I just think that's really fascinating for this movie to be be thinking about that because obviously it plays into the whole fact that this is during, you know, 
uh, right after the end of Vietnam and, and just cr- maybe creating an enemy there that we we didn't have to be fighting. You know, oh, yeah. there could have been another way. And I just, I, th- I think it's just the fact that a King Kong movie would be talking about any of those kind of issues is smart. And I like it. I love it when it, uh, I was just watching this last night and it was making me think some things. And I just, I, you know, I love a good monster mash movie that can make me think. Oh, me too. And, it, you know, it was funny when you were saying that I was thinking uh, sort of along the same lines that. It's like when you misunderstand something, but instead of just saying, you know what, I don't fully understand this yet. Let me find out more. Packard says, I don't understand this. It must be my enemy. Just straight to, nope, it must be evil and we have to destroy it. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, you know, like that's how we find out that Kong is actually protecting the world, not trying to get rid of everyone in it. But Packard doesn't want to wait to find out. And he's like that with everything. But then you kind of feel sorry for him because he's also representative of that reality of soldiers who were part of Vietnam that felt like they lost. They felt like, you know, they were sent home before it was really over and they didn't understand. And why why did all these people die? And all this stuff was invested if this is how we were going to leave things. And so that kind of actual real thing being inserted in here hit me really hard because I I wasn't alive in that time and so I, that really gave me a dose of what that must have felt like. Yeah, I like that, you know, and I think that is one of the things that they play off in the movie. It as much as you kind of dislike the character, you also do feel sorry for him because he can't find a way to overcome, you mm-hmm. know, and like you said, that that sense of loss and feeling like what you did was meaningless. It doesn't matter what sex you are, right? If mm-hmm. you feel like that in your life, you feel kind of hopeless and helpless. And and part of you, for so many of us, just wants to lash out then, you know? Right. Um, and so absolutely 100% agree with you. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that the movie does really well is playing with these themes that allow us to be able to kind of think through them on both sides. But I, you said something that I thought was really important. It's like, what happens when we don't give ourselves the opportunity or the time to actually figure something out, you know, to take mm-hmm. the time to assess something uh, and keep ourselves open and not just come with a, in with a bunch of assumptions and hoping that those assumptions are either proved uh, or, well, damn the assumptions. It doesn't matter what we find. We'll just, we'll just, you know, um, make that what we want it to be. You know, we'll, we'll whether it's true or not won't matter in the end because we want it to be this, so we will make it this. You know, and, and that's right. kind of, you know, because that's what, honestly where Packard ends up. You know, he realizes that he's wrong. But his last phrase is, you know, die, mother, and he then he dies. You know, so yeah. he's not willing to admit his mistake in that because it's yeah. it's too hard to admit the mistake at that point. Well, and it, I don't know about you, but I died laughing that, you know, you kind of get that moment earlier in the movie where he says, well, we've got to do this because we've got to get to Chapman. And then uh, Hiddleston pulls out Chapman's dog tag and he goes... Chapman's gone. And then he just goes, doesn't matter. We're still going with my plan. And you're like, what? It, he just said he's gone. Like, what the heck? 
<laughs> he just he will not be proven wrong. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that that goes to prove the point that in the end, it's it wasn't about the the man, you know, that they were missing. It was about them completing a mission. Yeah, because that's where he goes next. He says, "No, this is not going to be a mission that we don't complete." Right, and because for him, it all relates again to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that sense of loss, right? Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, and I think you know when you start to think about that, there's so much of us in our humanity that that does that all the time on much smaller scale, right? I mean, it's not like we're not all guilty of that in many ways in our lives. Um, maybe not as brazen or blatant as this, but still, we do that. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about this movie is that it does kind of make us come face to face with that. And to me, it was really interesting as well because this movie really becomes kind of about God versus man because one of the reasons they said that they wanted Kong to be so large is they wanted him to basically be godlike. And, you know, so much of the movie they talk about Kong as God on the island. And I thought Mm -hmm. it was just really fascinating because this movie kind of comes down to the people who can kind of come to terms with that and the people who cannot. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, it even felt to me like the scene, the final duel sort of between Packard and Kong, it was like he was looking even into the eyes of, the devil or or you could even say if they wanted Kong to be godlike that it was like when you've angered god that you know they're staring at each other with this face of you know who's going to back down first um and they also kind of preview that when kong is initially knocking down all the helicopters and you see his one eyeball looking through the helicopter at packard um, I really like those shots where they take their time and, you know, like wait a beat and let you soak it in for a minute. Um, the scope of this, it, it for sure absolutely feels like a larger than life God versus man thing um, and constantly makes all of them question what they're doing. You know, I mean, like it feels like he just wants to, you know, Packard um, complete the mission destroy the enemy at any cost and the rest of them are going we're in way over our heads here (laughs) we just need to get out well it and what was kind of fascinating to me is you were talking i was kind of thinking that this references a little bit that um conversation that the beavers have with the kids in narnia where they're like you know aslan is he safe of course he's not safe but he's good you right. know, and, and kind of in many ways, Kong is kind of like that on this island. You know, he's not safe, but he is good because he's keeping uh, the right order on the island. But also, he's not there to hurt anyone specifically w- unless they attack his territory, what's under his protection, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the reason that he comes after the helicopters is not because he's an evil, quote unquote, God. He comes after the helicopters because they are attacking his territory, the territory that he's keeping safe. Right. Like they come in and drop all these bombs and they expect, you know, whoever's living there to just go, okay. no, he's like, you guys get out of my island. Well, and and those bombs are the things that awaken those skull crawlers. Right. 
And so right. again, it's 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 our actions in this movie, you know, the, that create the problem and going a, kind of against the created order, the, you know, against God. And it's just, it's really fascinating. Like, cause I, as I started to think about this, it, it became more and more apparent because this also applies that to the many of the same themes that you got in the Godzilla movie, which, you know, the Godzilla film, that Gareth Edwards did is much like this as as well. You know, there's a created order. Godzilla's there to take care of these big, you know, massive mutos. You know, he's there to keep the order so that they don't end up taking over. And once they're gone, he goes back to his, mm-hmm. you know, wherever he comes from. You know, well, he, he takes a nap to recharge and then he goes exactly. Back to <laughs> I mean, you got to take a nap. So, yeah. um, everybody needs a power nap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the, uh, we get kind of that same thing here and we even see those like the you know there is a there's this there's this beingness behind Kong where it's like it's not just a monster there's something else there and I thought that was really interesting and so I don't know it's just funny that you could watch a movie where it's a bunch of big monsters fighting each other and that they really are talking to us about some things that are really important and they don't overshadow the movie but when you really start to think about it it's also not just mindless entertainment which is the thing that i always really like yeah i I like that they also don't go straight for um like the other kong movies having kong grab the girl and take her back to his lair or whatever you know this ends up being just uh, a soft nice moment briefly between Brie Larson's character and Kong when she touches his nose. It's like just enough for them to know each other's reason for being there. And then they're like, okay, we're okay now. You know, don't cross him. But if you're just here to, you know, do something peaceful and then get out, then fine. So I I thought that was really nice and that they didn't end up doing just a complete Kong remake. And that it felt like this was more about Kong himself and his world and the, the order of things than it was about Kong in the big, big city climbing the skyscrapers. Yeah, and that was thing I, I agree with you. You know, them wanting to go this other way and to tell this story, it they didn't. They specifically said they didn't want to go the Beauty of the Beast route, which right. had already been done, obviously enough. Mm-hmm. And so I'm right there with you. I totally appreciate that um, they didn't go that route. And so, um, you know, it's interesting too that the casting in this movie. There's some. There's a lot of people in this movie. Um, and I really like Tom Hiddleston, and not just because of Loki, but the role that this actually most reminded me of was. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the miniseries The Night Manager. But it is amazing. If you've never seen it, it's I think it's still on Amazon Prime. It's fantastic. It is a six-part miniseries, and it is maybe one of the most intense shows I've ever mm. watched. It's one of those shows where the episode is so tense that you're not sure if you want to watch the, the next episode yet or just wait till tomorrow because mm. it's, it's just so good, and it's a, it's a spy thriller, and it's fantastic, but 
So him kind of playing this, you know, special forces captain uh, from British special forces really, I, I thought, you know, he, I really like him. And honestly, you know, you can hate me for it. You can tweet me for it, but could totally see him being Bond one day. He's, he's really good. Ah, interesting. That, yeah, I don't know. I'm still kind of uh, on the, um, oh gosh, what's his name? He was in Dark Tower. Oh, Idris Elba? Yeah, I'm on the Idris Elba train for Bond. <laughs> uh, I want him to be Bond so bad. But um, I, my husband will tell you uh, when we were rewatching Skull Island, I went, oh, my honey bunny's coming on screen. And he's like, who's that? And I'm like, Tom Hiddleston. Because, I mean, <laughs> I'd never pictured him as an action hero. I didn't know it was something I wanted until I saw him with the leather gun straps. And then I went, all right, I'm down with this. He's just, I, I thought he was good in this movie. You know, he he, yeah. he has the right kind of swagger, I think, which is really good. And um, the other thing that I really liked about him in the in the film is that he, he, he does a good job of kind of playing... Even though he's kind of the action hero here, he's also just kind of the everyman in many ways. Like, you know, mm -hmm. he's just a guy who's honestly at this point he's just trying to get out of this alive with as many people possible, you know. Um, and I just there's something about him that I just enjoy watching on screen, and it's not because he's hot, yes, but it he just uh, there I really appreciate him as an actor. I think he did a great job in the role and. He doesn't, he's not asked to do a lot in the role. Like, it's not a huge emotional range or anything, mm -hmm. but I just find him believable and enjoyable. And, and in this kind of movie, that's what you want, honestly. Yeah. And, and I should add, he is not just good for his looks. He really is a great actor. And, you know, that's part of why we all love Loki so much is Tom Hiddleston's portrayal of Loki is so great. Um, but I, I feel the same way you do about his role in this as Conrad. And I think that he ends up being one of the few people who seems like an actual good man, um, who wants to, you know, protect the people that need protecting and try to get as many people out alive as possible and think smart about things. Um, you know, it, whereas you feel like a lot of the group is really in it for themselves or, for something else and they're not really worried about taking care of the other people in the group. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think, you know, that same thing that he does with Loki where he can play mischievous, but also have be somebody you can kind of see there's a goodness to. I think he, he brings that to this role a little bit because, you know, he's a guy that at the beginning of the movie, we're not quite sure where he's going to be kind of morally, you know, mm -hmm. but as he moves forward, we kind of see, Oh, okay. We know where this guy is. We we see, um, you know, who this guy is morally. And, and we want to follow him then for the rest of the movie, which is great. And that's exactly what you need from that character for him to kind of become that hero that, yes, you want everybody to follow so they can all get off the island because this is the guy who's going to do that for you. As opposed yeah. to, you know, Samuel L. Jackson, Jackson's Packard, who is not going to do that for you. No, he didn't care if we all go down. If we do that, at least we're going down together, right? Yeah. <laughs> With napalm. Well, I, yeah. yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he absolutely... First of all, Samuel L. Jackson, to me, is good in everything, even snakes on a plane. Um, he brings that seriousness, to, especially to this kind of role, 
he can play the comedy character, but he's really, really great at playing like in The Negotiator. Um, and then in movies like this, you know, where he's got to play the kind of the bad guy. Um, I mean, heck, Unbreakable. He's the villain. You yeah, know? he's yeah, a great villain. Absolutely. Um, and so it, he totally makes this movie for me because it becomes about um, the showdown between him and Kong every time. And he's constantly trying to figure out how to beat Kong and he just can't. And then, you know, he ends up dying in the most putrid way when he came up with all these grandiose ways to try and kill Kong and nothing worked. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I can't add anything to that. He, I think the thing that's so interesting about the movie in, in Samuel Jackson referenced this in the extras is that he's captain Ahab and this is his whale, yep. you know, and that's exactly the, the the relationship that we get here. And I think he plays it so perfectly because, as we mentioned before, on top of everything else that's happened to him in his life, we see why this guy does this, why this guy becomes this relentless Captain Ahab. Um, and I, I think, you know, Jackson is just able to play that so perfectly. So really appreciate um, his portrayal in the movie. And I think he makes it a lot of fun in a lot of ways. You know, he is that villain you kind of love to hate in the movie. So um, cool that he got to play with his co-star from uh, Captain Marvel before Captain Marvel. Brie Larson is uh, Mason Weaver is the anti-war photographer. She's an anti-war photographer. Did you, you caught that? She's an anti-war photographer. I did. She said that. Yes. So, um, and I, you know, Brie Larson is, I would say, much better in this movie than she is in the last movie that we watched her in. Yeah, I, I thought she was better. I, I kind of thought still even that in this movie, maybe it could have been a different actress to play that character. Um, and I may have liked it a little bit better, but I, I like the way that they wrote the character of Weaver um, and especially that they didn't make it about being a romance between Conrad and Weaver that they work together and they form a partnership but not that it suddenly becomes oh they're in love and you know love in the jungle yeah I think you know you get the feeling like there's something there but like you said it doesn't become the focus of the movie you know right. like that you you feel the underlying tension that's there between them but there there's never anything that consummates that or you know i mean I, they don't even kiss or that they movie. have time for right exactly so they don't they don't force any of that stuff it just becomes about two people going through this experience together um you know i i think that her role isn't large in this movie in the first place but they do a good job of making her have her place, you know. I, I thought it was kind of cool that she gets to be the one with the flare. And I, when she shoots that uh, skull crawler in the face with the flare, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, um, that was good. You know, and the, and the fact that she does forge a relationship with Kong that helps save everybody in the end is great. Um, and, yeah, I mean, she's... Uh, for what she has to do here, I just... I've it was interesting because I do feel like she, she just feels more like a fleshed out character <laughs> um, yeah. and she's not even the main person here. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, again, I've seen her in like room and um, the spectacular now. So I've seen her in movies where she is fantastic. Um, you know, here, I think she does a 
exactly what she needs to do in the role and she doesn't have to do more and we don't feel like we're cheated because she's not like you know stealing the show like i think she's right she's very good in the movie and she plays a good role in that whole you know setting time period that we're talking about you know especially because photojournalism was really big at this time because there were two such strong arguments about the whole Vietnam issue. Um, it really fit the setting for them to have this photographer come along and that she's, you know, documenting the trip, but also giving her perspective on it. And then I think maybe her perspective changes about her opinion on war in general that, you know, maybe it doesn't about Vietnam, but that maybe before she just thought that, it, as we all would, I would hope, think war is bad and we don't want it ever. Um, that sometimes, like in this situation, it, what they ended up in was unavoidable because they were put in that situation by other people and then they just had to figure out how to get out of it. And unfortunately, that couldn't be done without some kind of weapons. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because I was thinking about that whole idea about her and her arc, and it kind of made me think of like that idea of like a picture's worth, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, they say. And, you know, that that whole thought process of she does have a character arc of being somebody who feels like everything should be exposed because it's the truth to realizing that there are certain things that we keep hidden on purpose so there's a little bit more ambiguity there with her character, you know, um, that there are things that we should protect that if if we just said out loud to everyone, it would put more people in danger than if we didn't, you know, and that there's a responsibility then with how we say the truth and when we say it, because the truth is always powerful. I'm not talking about necessarily like, you know, people to people lying, right? I'm talking about the idea of like national secrets and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're, when we look at things aren't always so cut and dry. Right. And so right. here, I think we see her absolutely. Like you said, we, she learns that lesson, you know, she's not going to share these pictures with anyone because this is a place that should stay hidden. This is a place where, yes, it's the truth that it exists, but it's more dangerous for people to know this truth than to not know this truth. And so Mm -hmm. that's a really fascinating thing to have watched that character kind of metamorphosize into. Yeah. And I felt that especially with when she was taking photos of the tribe people that had built the fence and, you know, taken care of the other American that crashed there. I think that she really got the feeling of they may not ever speak, but they're, speaking volumes you know per se that with their actions and that she got the vibe that it was a very sacred thing and that maybe like you're saying like the the photos of them should stay private because it was a special moment that she got to even interact with them at all and that they didn't kill them all (laughs) yeah yeah well and you also think too it how would you explain like even if even if you were to share those photos, um, just certain photos, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. so much about the experience there you couldn't explain. And it's not a place that you want to bring 
light too. You know, it like we're talking about, is this a place that, that stays hidden on purpose because, you know, the government makes it so that, that it's too dangerous for people to visit. It's just too dangerous. Um, which brings to, you know, mind Samuel L. Jackson and the revenge of the Sith. He's too dangerous to be kept alive. You know, it's too (laughs) dangerous for people to know that this place exists. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the the other main character there that really stands out to me, um, even aside from John Goodman, is, you know, John C. Riley is so good as Hank Marlowe. Like, yeah. he's just phenomenal with this movie. He makes it funny. Uh, he makes it poignant. And he, he, he brings out some feels in certain places, which are so... I just does such a good job. And so... This casting, I think, is just great casting because, yes, he's great at comedy, but he does a lot of other things in this movie that he brings to it that are just excellent and exactly what this movie needs, I think. Yeah, I think you are you hit the nail nail on the head. <laughs> we were talking earlier about hammers and nails. Uh, he brings the heart to this movie because it, he makes it not just a war movie or a monster movie, he makes it about someone's personal story of what he went through that none of them could believe he had been there since World War II, that he had survived. Um, and then, you know, him and whoever this friend is, he keeps talking about, I guess, one of the tribes people built that boat out of his oh, plane. It was, the, it was the Japanese guy that he landed with. Okay, you know, I'm sorry. They yeah, tried to samurai. Kill so they had become friends. Yeah. And I like that tie-in, too, to to let you know that those were the guys you saw in the beginning, because it has that cold opening uh, that was so great. And, um, yeah, I, I think that seeing, um, if you watch the credits, John C. Riley's character getting to finally go home and see his wife for the first time in years and years and meet his son, who he had never met, who's now, you know, like an 18-year-old man, is just crazy. Uh, and it, it kind of made me teary. I don't know about you. <laughs> the whole arc of this character and, and even him talking about how he became friends with, uh, the, the Japanese pilot who had landed and that, you know, when you took off their uniforms in the end, they weren't that different and how this is what this whole movie is kind of about is about misunderstanding something. And, you know, obviously Wars happen for so many different types of reasons. Um, so that's not necessarily what we're talking about. When we get to the, just the daily, you know, people with people, you know, and, and how we think about certain people because we don't give them a chance or we just write them off uh, because they look a certain way or they act a certain way or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Or we throw a label on them or something like that, you know. And I just, that's a small, tiny little thing that happens in the movie, but I think it's important and it's kind of something that we see play out in the film. We have those people who can accept their preconceptions being challenged and change those preconceptions then when new information comes and then those who can't. And, you know, Marlo becomes that person who can totally do that and survives because of that. And and all of the people that we see that are able to do that are the people that survive. And yep. not only do they survive, but they 
they survived together. And it's only because they were they came together that that happened. And I think that's a great message. That's a and that what's what makes this character so. Each not only is he enjoyable to watch, but he also gives you an arc and an important thematic element that you can bring out of the movie and into our daily lives. Which again, I, who would have thought in a movie like this you'd get that? Which is great. Yeah, I absolutely didn't think that we would get that level of um, emotion to a movie like this. Um, yeah. And and then to the comedy, I felt like it in this movie, even though a lot of it is dark, um, some of the comedy is so funny. I mean, that's why I like um, the character of Cole, who just seems so... It's like he's dead inside. Like, he just... Nothing phases him. You know, he's sitting there eating a can of beans after all of the helicopter crashing just happened when they first got to the island. And his buddy is going, do you really have an appetite right now? And he's like, well, this level, you know, of a um, fight is unprecedented. What are we going to do? <laughs> like, I mean, okay, so what? I'm hungry. It was hilarious. Definitely unprecedented. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. That was, uh, yeah, um, he's, what he, he says, uh, I was just looking it up because it's just so great. He goes, yeah, that was an unconventional encounter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just so matter of factly, like it's not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it is great. I mean, he is a fantastic character. I really like that actor too. Um, Shea Wiggum is, is fantastic. And I think he does a great job with that role. And yeah, he has the other great quote that I love too, where he says, "You know, sometimes an enemy doesn't exist until until you go looking for one." And mm-hmm. the, again, it all it ties into that thematic element we kind of talking about with John C. Riley and the, just the overall uh, aspect of this entire film. So yeah, he's great. Um, he is one of the highlights of the movie for me. Every time I rewatch it, I think he's really funny. And uh, I also wanted to point out the the brotherhood I think between the guys that they show uh, that are all in the military together I think comes across perfectly because all of the friends and family I've had that have been in the military have said that it really is like that you know that these people you would give your life for or they would give theirs for you and you spend so much time together and doing such difficult things that you do become like family and I and I felt that with them and I think that's why I liked those guys so much and thought the casting of the military guys was so good. Um, I don't remember all their names. I'm sorry. Uh, but I love when uh, the one guy is talking about how many letters he's written to some woman and you think it's going to be a girlfriend. And they said, uh, wow, you got a really crappy mom. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. That was great. <laughs> that it's like he's written her like 20 and it's like she written me like, Three. Three, four times. Yeah, that was all, <laughs> that, that was hilarious. You know, one of the things that really stands out to me in this film are the visual effects. And I mm-hmm. have to say that I believe this to be one of the best VFX movies I've seen in a very long time. It is just so strong. And so much of this movie looks real. I mean, in, in the sense of like when I'm watching two monsters battle on screen, I'm almost never thinking to myself, oh, that looks real. But 
the way that this movie is shot, the way that they put the the VFX together, the way they created the VFX uh, landscapes that, and the way that those landscapes interact then with uh, yeah. the monsters like Kong and him getting wet. And I mean, they put a lot of work in this movie to make it feel like all the stuff is is happening. And I don't know what it is about the movie, and I don't know if it's just because we're in a setting where I'm not juxtaposing that with like buildings and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's automatically tricks your brain into being like, oh, that's not real. Where it's like this is in a nature setting, so it makes it much easier maybe for my brain to accept. I don't know, but I don't think it's just that. I just think that the visual effects in this movie are spectacular because I remember seeing this in the theater and that in monster battle is everything you want it to be and more. And part of that is just because it looks so great. Yeah. I, I noticed the visual effects right off the bat. Like I said, with the sunset as they're coming over to the Island. Um, and then my favorite scene actually is the fight in the graveyard when the poison gas comes out and then, you know, the one skull crawler swallowed John Goodman's character and the flash keeps going off so they could tell yeah, where he really is. Funny. <laughs> it just the sound effects and the creep factor and especially the visuals of that whole scene really make you feel like it is real and like you're in the middle of it with them looking over your shoulder every five seconds. Uh, I just I thought it was brilliant. And I and I think like you do like it, that the the way that they did these scenes, um, let alone the monsters themselves, it came across like they really put a lot of effort into making sure it looked as realistic as possible. Yeah. And uh, if something that we were because you mentioned this uh, before we started recording, how you really appreciated the cinematography and um you know, mm-hmm. you felt like Larry Fong, who is the cinematographer here, did such a uh, he's the DP in the film and did such a great job. And I mean, he's responsible for 300 and Watchmen and Sucker Punch and uh, uh, Super 8 Batman v Superman. Um, you know, so he has done a lot of movies that I think look amazing. And I think this is just another place where they did that as well, because a lot of the uh, the shots that they got. Um, even just plate wise that then they would use to build the digital sets is fantastic. So, you know, you're using all of that work and then, you know, just this is the shots in general, like you're talking about where they're, you've got the sunset and you've got that whole apocalypse now look of Kong in front of the sun, yes. you know, and this you know, with the helicopters and everything, all of that, it just, it just looks phenomenal. But the best part about it is that it, I'm never pulled out going like, oh, that just doesn't look real like so much. I mean, I think maybe the least real thing in this movie is probably when Kong eats the... the um, Oh, the octopus. The squid, yeah. Or was it a squid? Yeah. Yeah, it, w- whichever one it is, you know, he, he eats that. And that's probably the least effective of all the effects, right? Mm-hmm. But it that's not an important scene So you're in the sense of like... Oh, like if that's not the best ever, it doesn't work. Like, and when the effects need to be the absolute best, they are at their absolute best in this movie. I don't know. I just, it, when it comes to visual effects, this is one of the best movies I've seen in a very long time for that. 
And they totally killed it with the uh, the special effects of the giant, disgusting spiders. Oh, those things were so gross. I I was actually eating <laughs> so like gross. a piece of toast, and I stopped mid-bite and went, I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the things that they create in the movie, I think, really work. And, you know, you want that in a movie like this. So, um, I guess... I'm I'm really interested to see where you land then uh, ratings wise because I feel like we've had really nothing but good things to say about this movie. <laughs> I know, right? Did we say anything negative? The, the squid. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that was that was like our like least loved thing, I guess. So I'll just tell you right out of the gate. I mean, you guessed it already. I rarely ever give a perfect score. Um, in fact, I, some people have told me that in my average is usually a seven out of 10 for everything, but I, I really felt like this movie is super rewatchable that you can always get a bigger message out of it. And it's not something you expect to get and that the casting and the effects were so great, um, that I had to own it in physical media form, not just digital. So that says something about me too. So I give it a 10 out of 10. Um, and I will give it a 10 out of 10 um, broken flash bulbs because that was my favorite scene. <laughs> you know, I, I too, I mean, I really enjoyed this movie. You know, I do think um, it, it embraces the, the line between cheesy monster movie and something more and it does that really well and i do i i've rewatched this movie a few times now since it came out you know last year and mm -hmm. i still thoroughly enjoy it like i had a great time my wife and i had a great time rewatching this uh, y yesterday and so um and even just chuckling at some of the things like we we're talking about with the humor with uh john c Riley's hank and and that kind of stuff so yeah, I'm right there with you. I think um, I wouldn't call this, you know, a 10 for 10 for me, but, you know, I this is a 7 out of 10 downed helicopters uh, because mm -hmm. it really is. I, I, I was shocked when I saw this movie in the theater last year because I really wasn't sure where to, to go with this. Like, is this going to be a good movie? Is it not going to be a good movie? I didn't know what to expect, but I came out of it thoroughly having enjoyed it and being completely, you know, um, as uh, Maximus would say, are you not entertained? Uh, <laughs> and I was totally entertained. And that's really what I want from a movie like this. But then the facts, like we talked about all, there's just a lot of elements that I felt like they put into the movie that make it more than just entertaining. And that's mm -hmm. awesome. So uh, I am really glad that we got a chance to to talk about it. And really thankful that we have some incredible associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Wyam Millette, and Daniel Noah. They support the show through Patreon so that every week you can get an episode of the 602 Club. And you can get all of the episodes that we get here on uh, the Trek FM network because we have so many different shows. This is a massive network. And so we need your help to make sure that it keeps coming to each every week. It is financially a huge burden to do this and there's no way we can do it without you. So, uh, 
Pledge your support over at patreon.com slash trek.fm. See how you can be part of the team. We've got some great contribution levels that give you even extra perks. Uh, but honestly, in the end, every little bit helps. So again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm. Uh, Christy, I mean, I think we had a beyond beyond a blast talking about this one. So hopefully... Oh, yeah. Um, Godzilla King of Monsters is as good as this and the Godzilla we talked about a few weeks ago. So I can't wait because it's, it's gonna got have a lot Ghidorah, to live up to, honestly. But it's gonna have Ghidorah that has three heads. That's true. That's true. So I'm Just looking saying. forward to it as well. Uh, before we get there, though, uh, what else you got going on? Because I know people like want to follow you, want to find you. What, what's going on with you? I'm uh, doing a lot of things. So, uh, you know, of course, I'm here on the 602 Club almost every week on occasion. You know, either I'm sick or we're um, switching out guests. And so I'll miss a week. But most of the time we're together. Um, and I also, in addition, if you can believe I can fit more, um, I do sabers and spells bi-weekly. I'm sorry, bi-monthly with my friend Teresa. So it's uh, at least every other week. But it's been a little more often since Game of Thrones has just ended. Um, so we've been doing uh, like three shows this month. Um, but that is going to be all about everything geeky that Teresa and I love um, under the sun. And then things that we just consider geeky because we're so in love with whatever it is. But also I'm doing once a month a segment called fashion in five on the star wars report where i talk about star wars men's and women's fashion and then once a month i do a show called planet leia on fanthatrax network oh that's great well christy i don't i don't man do you need a do you need a quick power nap after that <laughs> yes i do <laughs> oh yeah and sorry you can find me personally on twitter and instagram at bespin bell Yes, and make sure you are following Christy there because then uh, you will be able to know all the different podcasts she's doing too. So check all of that out. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd under the name MattRushing02. I'm here on the network doing The Orb, Chris Jones, talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Do check it out. Uh, we just got a brand new episode out. We were talking about one of the early episodes of Deep Space Nine, A Man Apart. Uh, you can also find me on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One's called Owl Post. I do that with Drea Kaufman and we talk about Harry Potter each and every week and we do that one chapter at a time. And then I'm doing Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills who was on last week with Christy and I talking about Dooku Jedi Lost. We love talking about Star Wars. So if you like Star Wars, this is the show for you. And then last but not least, I do a show with my friend Courtney talking about movies but through the lens of faith and it is called cinema stories so i hope you will join me there but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear 